How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation with James Traub, a journalist and scholar specializing in international affairs. We're discussing his book today, John Quincy Adams, Militant Spirit, a full-length biography of the sixth president of the United States. Mr. Traub, thank you very much for joining me. Well, David, I'm very happy to be here. So what led you to write a book about John Quincy Adams, your only book on a U.S. president? Well, you know, at the time I started writing it, let's say, oh, I don't know, or researching it maybe 12 years ago, I came at it by a kind of circuitous route, which is the following. I was beginning to teach a class that involved the history of U.S. foreign policy. So I was doing background reading. And you can't do this without running across John Quincy Adams, who is arguably the greatest secretary of state we ever had. And so I was reading about Adams and I thought, you know, I should find the good biography of Adams and and learn more about him. Well, I was amazed to find that for a person as fascinating and and consequential as he was, there really hadn't been a good biography written in, at that time, a good 60 years. The famous diplomatic historian Samuel Flagg Bemis wrote a a great two-volume biography. It won the Bancroft Prize. But that was a different world. I mean, that's the kind of book that, you know, will describe a a treaty in, in, in 30 closely written pages. The kind of book I wanted to write actually hadn't been written about him. And so I think that and then the discovery of this astonishing diary that he kept from the time he was 10 until almost the moment that he died when he was 80. I thought, what an astonishing resource. You know, when you write about people who lived in the fairly distant past, you almost always wind up saying something like, He must have thought this. He must have felt that, which I hate doing. And with Adams, with this astonishing document, you could actually know what he thought and what he felt at any given moment. So I thought, what a great subject. And that's really how it came about. Uh, His father was our second president, and he worked with his father early in his life. Uh, Was uh, John Quincy Adams close to his father? And did his father have much influence on him once John Quincy Adams was an adult? Well, you know, the fascinating thing is how much influence they had on each other. Really, it was a really reciprocal relationship. So when he was a boy from age zero to 10, well, and especially I would say from age six or seven to 10, these were the first stirrings of the revolutionary moment. And so his father, starting from the time that little Johnny was about seven, 
was away at the Continental Congress. His father wasn't around very much, and his education was left to his mother. From 10 to 17, he was in Europe with his father, and it was an extremely close relationship. And his father basically opened up little Johnny's skull and poured his erudition, his beliefs, his feelings into it. And he made him a kind of mini me. And he was always the one who was going to be the heir to the father. He was the firstborn, but he was the one who inherited the father's gifts. And so John Quincy Adams developed a reverence for his father, which never waned, not, not for one second. But what's so interesting is that uh, starting from somewhere in this moment, 10 to 17, the boy grows up to be a young man. And so when he is 13, 14 or so, he is sent away to Russia to be, in effect, the aide-de-camp for the American ambassador to Russia, uh, Francis Dana, who um, doesn't speak French well, and little Johnny speaks French like a native. When he returns to his father in Paris, and he's 15, He's been living for four or five years in Europe, and he's been absorbing his father's wisdom. He's incredibly sophisticated. He becomes his father's secretary at the, the peace talks for what lead to the Jay Treaty, which formally ends the Revolutionary War. From that time onward, he becomes a source of support and counsel for his father. And then, of course, later on, he, he's an ambassador for his father when his father is president. Uh, he plays a crucial, crucial role, and his father absolutely listens to his advice, is deeply shaped by his advice. And so it's a beautiful relationship. I mean, it was one of profound mutual respect. So let's go to the early years. You've already addressed some of that, but where was John Quincy Adams educated? At home, like most boys were, except that actually there really was a little school in Quincy. Uh, and he went there until he was about mm, six or seven. And then his mother, Abigail, thought he's coming home with all sorts of Tommy rod in his head. He needs a private tutor. And so she found John Thaxter, who was a very well-educated fellow who became his, his private tutor from age seven to 10. And so I mean, the more meaningful answer really is that he had two amazing parents. And so when his father was home, uh, which was, as I say, kind of rare in those in that period, uh, you know, he was talking to his father and reading the books his father told him to read. But most of the time it was his mother and Abigail was probably one of the best read women in colonial America. She had had a, an uncle who uh, actually cared about the learning of girls, which was very unusual. She corresponded with some of the most learned and thoughtful women in America, like Percy Warren Otis, who was a famous, who was a historian and educator. And uh, so she assigned a little Johnny the books that he should read. And those books were history. Uh, there was a book by a man named Rollins, not meant for children, meant for adults, but 
you know, Johnny was precocious. So by the time he was eight, he was reading this world history. And of course, he started learning Latin when he was tiny. And so he was reading Latin history as well. I mean, it wasn't quite, you know, John Stuart Mill with, you know, that kind of super crazy rarefied young education, but he was reading very serious books and he would find things on his own. He, he was in his parents' library and he found a copy of The Tempest. He was eight and he wrote, he wrote decades later, this is one of the happiest moments of his life. He said, I was, I was lapped in Elysium. It, for him, reading about Prospero and Caliban was wonderful. And so his education in Shakespeare started very early also. I'm sorry, I, I forgot one very important thing. The Bible. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And so that was uh, the core of everything. I mean, Rome and the Bible, they were the foundations. So he is overseas with his father. And his father decides at that point, I guess he's a teenager, to send him to Harvard, where his father had gone. Is that right? Yeah. So he's 16. It's now 1783, 1784. The Jay Treaty is being wound up. And so the whole family is going to go back. There was no open question as to whether, A, he would go to college, or B, where. His father had gone to Harvard, and if you were a New England man and you were uh, either well-to-do or at least uh, a polished, educated person, there was only one place to go. You went to Harvard. How did he actually do at Harvard, and what did he do after Harvard? Well, Harvard was a happy interval for this kid. You know, later in life, the word happy does not recur in the JQA biography. He was not a happy person. Um, and in fact, he was so stern and so fierce that it is hard to remember that once he was a young man who acted more or less like young men. And at Harvard, really for almost the first time in his life, he had peers. I mean, here was this kid who'd grown up in the courts of Europe, and he knew all the proper forms of address for margraves and marquises and princesses and whatnot, and was completely comfortable in that astonishingly rarefied world, but he hardly ever had a friend his age. And so, you know, there at Harvard, which was a tiny little place in those days, he, you know, hung around with friends. And um, of course he studied, but, you know, he argued, you know, and he, uh, you know, was very big in the elocution classes and all that. Um, he didn't get in trouble. He was a very well-behaved fellow. He was only there for a couple of years. It wasn't standardized in four years quite the way it became later. He got his diploma. He gave a a high-minded speech because he had been voted to give this speech. And it, it, the speech is very telling because the speech, the theme of the speech he gave is what we would call today a kind of greatest generation speech. He said, our fathers fought a heroic battle against an immense foe to bring us freedom. It's, it is not given to us, he said, to fight such heroic battles. And yet, he said, we must find our own form 
of heroism, not martial, but patriotic heroism, building our country. And that thought, I think, that uh, post-greatest generation thought was always in his mind. He wanted to have a war that he could fight, uh, but he didn't. And so he found whatever was the closest thing. He found forms of heroism, sacrifice, courage that would make him worthy of his own forefathers. So that was college. So then, because he was going to be a lawyer, because that's what his father was, and in New England, you either really, if you were going to be an educated person, went into the clergy or you went into the law, and the future of the country was going to be led by lawyers. That was already clear. So he he went to Haverhill, where he um, uh, apprenticed to a lawyer, and that's where he met this beautiful girl, who is the daughter of one of the wealthiest men in town, Moses Frazier. You can still see their very fine house uh, on the streets there. Uh, fell in love, courted her, uh, you know, broke up with her, uh, and then began his career as a lawyer. How did John Quincy Adams get appointed to his first two ambassadorial appointments? Did he know George Washington? Well, he would have known George Washington a little bit later in life, post the period I'm talking about, uh, when he would have gone down to Washington to visit his father, who, of course, was George Washington's vice president. And so uh, he, to my knowledge, would not have met Washington before that time, which is to say when he was maybe 25 or so. So he brought himself to people's attention uh, in a way that was very much of that moment. Thomas Paine had written his call to revolution. You know, first he wrote Common Sense, then in 1791 he wrote another book. And the Adamses thought that the new Thomas Paine was basically calling for the French Revolution in America. 1789, the French Revolution happened. This is 1791, 1792. So John Quincy Adams says, now the time has come for me to announce myself to the public. I'm going to write an attack on these crazy revolutionary doctrines. Now, paradoxically, because in those days, if you wrote something in the popular press, you didn't put your name on it. You call yourself Cincinnatus or something. Give yourself a Roman name. He called himself Publius, the public. And he wrote a series of six broadsides against pain. And at this time, American politicians were beginning to separate into factions. The Constitution itself had really divided people into these factions, which came to be called Federalist and anti-federalists. The anti-federalists were the Jeffersonians who believed in a small government. Uh, they believed in the right of the people above all over the state. They believed in the right to, to end the bonds of, of the end to dissolve the compact with the government uh, when the government was no longer just as the United States had done with Great Britain. And so they were in effect the more radical party where the federalists were people who very much feared that the people could become a mob and believed in a stronger government to prevent people's worst tendencies, even though they would have called themselves Republicans who believe profoundly in the 
right of the people who are governed to give their consent um, to those who governed them. So the Adamses were very strong Federalists. New England was the home of the Federalists. Virginia was the home of the Anti-Federalists. Uh, Payne was a Jeffersonian, even more so, more radical than Jefferson. So Adams writes this brilliant, these brilliant, ferocious broadsides. And everybody thinks, I know who wrote that. That's John Adams. Because who else could have been so brilliant, so coruscating, so harsh, so and so Federalist? Uh, but in fact, it was his son. And so those, those articles, they, they brought him to people's attention. And so Washington came to know of this brilliant young fellow, and he also came to know of him because John Adams would show him the letters that John Quincy wrote to him about his views of the world, uh, which were terribly sophisticated. And so when Washington needed a diplomat, at this time, the American diplomatic service consisted of half a dozen people at the most, to go to the Netherlands, he chose John Quincy Adams. And so that's how he went there. Where did uh, John Quincy Adams meet his wife, Louisa? And what did his parents think of Louisa? So Adams is in the Netherlands as ambassador. And then he gets another posting. Washington has already asked Adams to move to Lisbon. And when his father becomes president, he says, no, Lisbon is like a backwater. I want you to go to to Berlin, to Prussia, which was a more important state, but more to the point, was uh, an important point of resistance to Napoleon. And at that time, uh, many Americans, and especially the Federalists, and above all, John Quincy Adams, talked about Napoleon almost the way people would have talked about Hitler in 1940, as this uh, megalomaniac who was trying to take over the world. And so Adams, on his way from the Netherlands to Berlin, stopped in London to get further diplomatic instructions. And so there he began frequenting the home, as so many Americans did, of a very wealthy American, Marylander, named Joshua Johnson, uh, who had married a, well, let's say, shacked up with uh, an English woman, and they had three daughters. And it must have been just the most delightful household, a household of uh, attractive women. And so Adams began going there. But because Adams was a very, very reluctant swain, the girls would like get together and giggle and think, you know, which one of us does he like? I can't tell that he likes any of us. So they all thought he was interested in the oldest girl. Louisa was the youngest of the three, and Adams had, if anything, I'm sure probably treated her like a little girl, and he was already a formidable figure. I mean, he was not young anymore. He was 34. So he was, you know, past the age, when well past the age when people get married in those days. And he already was becoming the stern person after these years of diplomacy where he was representing the United States. He was beginning to don that mask that later made people think he was stone-faced. So out of nowhere, he kind of blurts out a proposal to Louisa who could not have been more shocked. She was very pretty. 
She was well-read too. I mean, they were both people who had fallen in love with Paradise Lost when they were teenagers, not exactly a normal thing for a teenager to do. She played the harp and she had all of the womanly arts. I mean, she had been raised to be an adornment and nothing more. She could not have been less like Adams's mother, you know, who, in addition to reading uh, Roman history, was uh, uh, making the family's clothes and milking the cow and making the butter. Louisa was this hothouse plant. And Adams proposed to her and uh, she couldn't think of a reason to say no. Uh, and so she said yes. Okay. When uh, John Adams' father left the presidency, what did John Quincy Adams want to do? Right. So, so the sequence is he goes to Berlin, where he plays a very important role. He's a he really is the the kind of monitor of Napoleon's progress. Before he goes to Berlin, uh, he is writing his father about the danger of French ambitions in the United States. And this is now 1798. And this is the beginning of what's called the XYZ affair when, when uh, Talleyrand, the French foreign minister, he sends three agents who are going X, Y, and Z to bribe, to bribe the Americans because he's trying to get them on his side in the French war with England and uh, the French brewing hostilities with England. And Adam Sr., now president, is extremely worried that the French are intriguing in Washington and are gaining uh, influence with uh, the anti-federalist crowd. Uh, for example, Monroe, who had been ambassador in France, who was extremely pro-French. And so there was this moment when the United States came very, very close to going to war with the French. And the most important advisor, whom I think President Adams had at that point, was his son. And uh, John Quincy said, these people are dangerous. We have to be armed. We have to be ready. We have to not believe anything they say. But then when the war fever really broke out and people prepared to go to war with France, it was John Quincy Adams who said, you know what? The French have hurt us. Our posture of resistance has mattered. They, we've scared them off and they don't want to go to war with us. And he said to his father, now is the time to sue for peace. We can reach an agreement with them. Don't go to war. And so the father didn't, which caused him an enormous problem with his own anti-French Federalist supporters. And is one reason why he then lost to Jefferson in 1801. But it is also one reason why we didn't wage a disastrous war with France. And so that's important to remember. Okay, so then John Adams loses the presidency. John Adams comes home and he decides almost immediately uh, that he needs to become a politician like his father. And he he briefly attempts a run for Congress and loses by just a few hundred votes, which he blames on the rain. You know, he was not a known figure at that time. He'd been out of the country for the previous seven years. His father had been uh, dis not disgraced, but he lost the presidency. So there weren't the coattails there. So he lost. But Nothing daunted, he then runs for state senate. And so he becomes Massachusetts state senator. And of course, in those days, members of the U.S. Senate were not elected. That wouldn't happen until the early 20th century. They were appointed by the state assembly. 
And so when a vacancy occurred, John Quincy Adams was then appointed to the U.S. Senate. And so that was really the beginning of his national political life. And how did he do there as a U.S. senator? And uh, did he actually enjoy it? And how did he actually happen to leave the U.S. Senate? Oh, he enjoyed it immensely uh, because this was a man who was made to fight. I mean, he just loved to fight. He loved to argue. And he everything was a principle for him. Everything, everything. You know, he just would never compromise, even as a state senator he made a reputation for himself as a hopelessly intransigent figure. Uh, This is now Jefferson's presidency, 1805, 1806, 1807. The fear of the French had vanished with the the end of this period of hostilities over the XYZ affair. Um, And this whole fear that the French were trying to undermine us at home had vanished, especially after 1803, when Napoleon, who really did have designs on North America and thought he would use Haiti as a foothold to conquer it, the Haitian Revolution had thrown out the French. Napoleon had given up on this gambit. He had, of course, sold this gigantic parcel of territory called the Louisiana Territory to the United States in 1803. He had turned his attention to Egypt and elsewhere. And so the fear now was the British. And so increasingly, Starting in 1806 or so, uh, the British began to uh, impress American seamen. The British, the British uh, treated their own sailors dreadfully, and one way they would replenish the merchant crews was to intercept American ships at sea and kidnap American sailors. Um, and so there was a growing naval battle, which was really connected to a larger struggle for influence and really for the merchant trade off the East Coast. And so in 1807, Jefferson uh, imposes, in effect, a boycott on trade with England. Now, trade with England was not only overwhelmingly important for this infant nation, it was the lifeblood of the New England economy. That's, you know, New England was not a place of agricultural bounty. It was rocky soil. Uh, The South and the emerging West were the sources of agricultural wealth. New England was a mercantile area. And so, you know, they were trading finished goods, also made in New England, uh, above all with England. And so this was a catastrophe. And so all of New England voted against it, with one exception, John Quincy Adams. And so here was the first moment when Adams's uh, flinty integrity really showed itself. And so he said, I know what my constituents want, but I'm not here to represent my constituents. I am here, as we all are here in the United States Senate, to represent the United States. And this whole question, you know, of what it was a representative represented was still not a clear question. And Adams felt that he had to say that he despised the idea of of regional thinking, by which he meant representing the particular interests of a region, in his case, New England. And I suppose this was connected to the horror of political parties that the founders all had, that for them, a political party meant a special interest as opposed to a national interest. And a true patriot had to think in national terms. And so Adams said, I will not 
allow my own constituents to delude themselves by confusing their own personal interests with the national interests. And so however angry with me they may be, I will continue to stand for the national interest. And it it was immensely admirable, but it was also suicidal. And of course, a a politician is not a, a, a saint is not a martyr. He has to live to fight another day. So whether or not we actually should wish to emulate John Quincy Adams, I I don't know. Uh, But the denouement is all too relevant, which is the Massachusetts state legislature warned Adams, you can't do this. You are violating our state interest. And Adams didn't listen. And they recalled him. He was recalled. He was fired. They wouldn't even allow the uh, people of Massachusetts to vote on. He was recalled. He was brought back, supposedly, in disgrace, brought back home. And not only did he not feel disgraced, it was perhaps the proudest moment of his life. Because here was a man who was looking for an opportunity to suffer for his principles and had found one. So um, he leaves the United States Senate. And then Madison appoints him at some point to the Supreme Court, but he doesn't really want that job. So why did he turn down the Supreme Court appointment and take the position given to him by Madison of ambassador to Russia? Well, I I think they happen in the reverse sequence, which is so so Adams, though a federalist and Madison is an anti-federalist. And again, these labels had almost gotten archaic, but they still mattered, had endeared himself to Madison's party by supporting Jefferson on this all-important question. So Adams was a turncoat to his own party. And indeed, people turned their backs on him in Massachusetts. I mean, quite literally, his oldest friends wouldn't talk to him. He was treated like a pariah, which was extremely painful for his family, very much including Louisa, who just despaired of this man. And he wouldn't budge an inch. He, if anything, again, felt this shows I was right. Though normally uh, the president would not have turned to a member of the other party uh, for a diplomat. John Quincy Adams was the most seasoned diplomat in the United States. Um, and he had been to Russia when he was 13, which at that time Russia was, you know, like Mars. And so in 1809, uh, Madison asked him to go to Russia. And he agrees. Russia was very important then because Napoleon was, in his effort to strangle England, was trying to persuade all the neutrals to not trade uh, with the English. That included uh, Russia, Sweden, the United States. And Madison needed somebody who could end this system of enforced neutrality. And he wanted Adams to go there to persuade the czar to change his view. All right, does that for several years. And then Monroe becomes president of the United States. And he asks um, Adams to become his secretary of state. Is that right? Right. So so, uh, Adams stays for three years. He goes to Ghent, where the treaty for the War of 1812 to end the war is being negotiated. He joins this extraordinary group consisting also of Henry Clay and Albert Gallatin, who had been Jefferson's 
uh, Secretary of the Treasury and was a man as brilliant as either Adams or Clay. Uh, and these three and others uh, negotiate a tremendously successful conclusion to the War of 1812 in Ghent in 1814. All right, but then he becomes Secretary of State, which- Comes back, right, and then becomes, so 1817, and again, Monroe is a member of the other party. Adams is seen by now as a man beyond party, uh, clearly a man who, who, you know, is presidential material. Secretary of State was the pathway to being president. And so when Monroe uh, gave him that uh, position, uh, it was also a way of saying, you know, you are being put on the presidential track. Okay. So he serves as uh, Secretary of State for eight years right. and helps develop what became known as the Monroe Doctrine, which could have right. been the John Quincy Adams Doctrine. And what was the Monroe Doctrine? And was Adams so deeply involved in actually formulating it? Well, you know, David, every biographer winds up having a bias in favor of his subject. And so I recognize that my belief that Adams really is the chief author of that doctrine, it could possibly be because he's my guy. Uh, and it is true that if you read the other Adams biographers, they are inclined to give a lot of credit to Adams. And if you read the Monroe people, they're inclined to give credit to Monroe. Uh, Dexter Perkins, the great diplomatic historian of the mid-century, said uh, the ideas in the Monroe Doctrine were widespread. They were in the air. And so he uh, kind of doesn't believe in this giving credit. However, Adams's diary is very, very explicit on this subject. Though, again, we shouldn't assume that if Adams wrote it, it must be true. It's Adams believed to be true. And so, you know, what Adams tells us and what we also know from contemporary records is that uh, there was tremendous disagreement about how the United States should go about asserting what they all agreed it should assert, which is we are not an infant country anymore. Uh, George Washington in his farewell address said, if we don't allow ourselves to form alliances with warring European countries, the time will come when we will be able to bid defiance to our European rivals. Well, that time had come. The United States was not quite at the level of those countries, but it could bid defiance to them. And so they all agreed that it was important to say, you, European countries, cannot anymore seek uh, colonies on not only our continent, but our hemisphere. And of course, remember that time in the late 1810s, the early 1820s, Spain still controlled uh, most of South America. These were Spanish colonies. And so there were many differences of opinion in the cabinet. John Calhoun, who was the Secretary of War, Monroe himself, they were inclined to do a number of things. First, they wanted to, to recognize the independence of all of these republics, no matter how much it would infuriate the Spanish. They wanted to acknowledge uh, the struggle of the Greek people against the Turks uh, for freedom. They wanted to acknowledge the struggle of the Spanish and Portuguese who had recently come under the French Bourbon monarchy. So there was a battle in Europe between republicanism and autocracy. And, and Monroe and the others wanted that statement to really be a statement of America's republicanism and its support for Republicans. And so you might say in modern terms that this is the idea of democracy promotion. It would have been republicanism promotion. Mm -hmm. Adams had a different view. Adams said, we must separate our assertion of our own national interests from these larger questions of 
how European countries are behaving towards other European countries or even towards these colonies. And so he wanted a much more astringent statement that on the one hand would say to European powers, the era of colonizing our hemisphere, not just our country, not just our continent, but our hemisphere is over, but we are not telling you what to do. With the affairs of Europe, we are anxious spectators, but we're spectators only. And so these arguments took place in the cabinet day after day after day. And Adams was really truculent. And he would come to Monroe separately and say, look, if you use this kind of language, you will convince these European powers that we're at war with them. And that will be dangerous for America. We can't do that. We've got to say, of course, we believe in Republican principles, but we're not going to get involved. And that's what the Monroe Doctrine says. And so the kind of language, which today we would call realist language, which is we're not going on some binge of democracy promotion. We're not going to intervene anywhere. We'll avow our principles, but we will stand only for our own national interests. Well, let me just say that uh, you know John Quincy Adams inside out, upside down. And we'll have a second conversation to discuss his presidency and his post-presidential career. So I want to thank you, James Traub, for your terrific discussion of John Quincy Adams and your book, John Quincy Adams, Militant Spirit. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.